toxic masculinity. Welcome back to Lyrics for Lunch, the show that loves to point out the lawman beating up the wrong guy. Is that did that work? It, no. Okay, I buy it. <laughs> Not the song that we're talking about today, but but yeah, great. Let's go with it. Song adjacent. Song adjacent. Artist. It's very artist. It's my favorite song. So it is. We're it is one of I my favorite now. Bowie songs. <laughs> lawman beating up the wrong guy. Uh, I'm just waiting for you to finish the intro. Oh, I'm Lindsay Tucker. <laughs> I am your host, Lindsay Tucker. I'm not really the host today, though. I'm just joining you from my new couch. Sure. Great. This is a couch session. I'm relaxing, and I'm waiting for Aviv to tell me all the things about David Bowie. Hi, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm, I guess, the, the one person that takes the show seriously. <laughs> Um, what and this, are you talking about? This is a, this is a show where we do deep dives into the famous songs and artists from history and stories you might not know. Corrections department edition. So this this week we're talking about. We need a correction sound. Well, we're correcting we're correcting some omissions this week because I saw the the David Bowie documentary Moon Age Daydream, and it was ass. It was a well-made. Oh, this whole episode is a correction. This whole episode is a correct, or not a correction, but a corollary to the David Bowie documentary *Moon Age Daydream*, which is like it is an interesting filmic experiment. There's no narration. There's it's just like a series of interviews and performances from David Bowie, but they like leave a bunch of stuff out, and so we're going to talk about that stuff today. So it was bad journalism. It was it was a good movie, bad journalism, or like entertainment. Well, it I don't was know. a good movie. Hey, so now was, I need to see it. It was it was ultimately you told me it was bad. It was bad. As I mentioned, this is sort of a, a rebuttal to the David Bowie documentary Moon Age Daydream. Um and I'm a little hesitant to start this episode. I, I was a little hesitant to start this episode because David Bowie is a beloved figure. Lots of mythos around him. And he, like many artists, did some indefensible things. But his music also means a lot to a lot of people, especially in the LGBTQ community. And so by virtue of that fact, we're going to eventually get into the age-old discussion of separating the art from the artist. And whether you like it or not, everyone does this to some degree, right? Do you still like Toy Story, even though Tim Allen is a Republican? Do you listen to Michael Jackson, R. Kelly, Ted Nugent, Eric Clapton? Where is the line? Hmm. Where is the line? I I kind of reject the premise of where is the line because people that usually say where is the line imply that there shouldn't be a line that you should just be able to like turn your brain or morality off in order to not be bothered about thinking about the implications of. Or maybe they really are curious where is the line because I kind of am. I'm curious to explore where is where the line is. You know, like I've thought about. You know, you brought up Michael Jackson, right. where it's like, do we would we want to do a Michael Jackson episode on this show? But or is what he did so horrific that he doesn't deserve any airtime? Or is he a human being that had horrific things happen to him, and it's worth exploring the trajectory of 
human action. Uh, and so this is kind of where I land, right? As always with this show, we try not to kind of reduce people down to two-dimensional objects. Even if we like the artists that we're covering, we don't. I would say especially if we like the artists that we're covering, as I do with, with David Bowie, like we try not to say, like, he was great. He never did anything wrong. So I, I try, you know... I'm going to do my best to present this information knowing that I might ruin David Bowie for some people, but also knowing that it won't matter one way or another for other people. And that's, I think, for the listeners to decide. But the the, the bigger point that I want to make in all this is it's kind of unhealthy to idolize someone because they will inevitably disappoint you. And then it becomes up to you, the hero worshiper, to make a decision to either deconstruct the personalities or memories or worldview that you built around this this artist who has now shown that they're deeply flawed and capable of doing bad acts like we all are, or to ignore the bad acts and tip the scale toward the joy that they've brought to you and to the world. But in doing that, you minimize the pain that they've caused and silence the voices of the victims and worse and i think this is the case of today's artists you kind of shield other people and their bad actions so you're telling us not to idolize and i'm asking you who do you idolize i I try not to idolize anybody because they will inevitably disappoint me who have you disappointed who have i disappointed many many people Many, 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 many people. people. And I, many more. To me, the answer can only be it's unsafe to have heroes in the first place. So without further ado, our song of the week is David Bowie's Heroes.
What is your history with the song? So in Moulin Rouge, which I've only seen one time because I really honestly did not care for it that much. I I feel the same. I'm not a big Moulin Rouge person. (sighs) And this was in college. So my memory is that it was Ewan McGregor. He sings Heroes. Yes. In the the movie, they do like a Heroes thing, correct? And Moulin Rouge is the... Third movie in the Red in... Curtain trilogy. That's correct. So that's really it with that song. It's not one of my favorite Bowie songs. But yeah. So, let's start at the beginning. Let's start at the very beginning. <laughs> A very good place to start. David Robert Jones was born January 8th, 1947. Yep. <laughs> What's On right? a cold day in December. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
So his birth name is David Jones, David Robert Jones, um, and Davy Jones, Davy Jones, and in, in f- that is in fact one of the you'll see. So um, he didn't grow up super rich. His dad lost all of his money promoting the career of his first wife. Ooh, so, what was her career? So his dad's name was John Jones, and uh, his first wife was named Cherie. Her real name was Hilda, but. The, her her lounge act was called Cherie the Viennese Nightingale, and she was a jazz <laughs> singer. And did you say Viennese? Cherie the Viennese Nightingale. Yes. Is that a word? Viennese? Yeah, like someone from Vienna. Oh, Viennese. <laughs> we are on page one. <laughs> like I thought you were trying to say. <laughs> All right. What do you think I was trying to say? Like Vietnamese, but no, <laughs> just like slurring your words. Viennese, like from Vienna. So her real name is Hilda. Her what? Her real name was Hilda. She was a jazz singer, and John Jones, David's father, was twenty six. He was love struck, and he he staged a disaster was quote disastrous review in the nineteen thirties. This is from Vice. He owned a piano bar called the Boopadoop, and it was on Charlotte Street in Soho. Event he lo- he like lost that club because the review was so made like so little money and he was forced to take a job as a porter. Eventually, uh, he found better better work as working for the children's charity Barnardos and Bowie's. What are you saying? Review review like she like did a show. She did like a variety act. Okay, you're like he staged a review, so I'm thinking like in the newspaper. No, 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 no. <laughs> let's let's start this. Let's start this again. He staged quote a disastrous review. R e v u e, not R e v i e w. Okay, thank you, thank you. And so at his club, the Boopadoop. Was this a one woman show? I I think so. Or like she had like accompaniment, but it was like her show. The Carol Barnett show. Yeah, more like singing and dancing than Carol did. Shanice, the Shanice show. Cherie, the Viennese Nightingale. <laughs> That's right. All right, all right, go ahead. <laughs> Eventually, he was forced to take a job as a porter, and then he found better work uh, working for a children's charity called Barnardo's. Bowie's mother, Peggy Burns, was a former cinema usherette, and she also was married once before uh, she and John got together. So at the at the age of nine, David was dancing at uh, like a music and movement class, and the teachers called him strikingly imaginative, and they the teachers called his interpretations vividly artistic, and his poise was astonishing for a child. That same year, his interest in music was further stimulated by his father, who brought home a collection of American 45s by artists, including the Teenagers, the Platters, Fats Domino, Elvis. Elvis and Bowie coincidentally shared a birthday, and Little Richard. Upon listening to Little Richard's song, Tutti Frutti, Bowie would later say that he heard God. Oh, what did God say? Uh, It's Tutti Frutti on Rudy, I guess. She said, yo, what's up? And she wants you to lose the gun. (laughs) By the age of 10, David was playing ukulele and bass in a skiffle band and dancing what his sister referred to dancing like a possessed elf elf dancing like possessed elves. I don't know. Possessed by elves. I don't I don't know what this quote means. 
Was it because he was small? I guess. I don't know really. He was like impish. Uh, he went to high school at a place called Bromley Technical High School. And his schoolmaster was this guy, Owen Frampton. And in, Related to Peter? In David's own account, Frampton led through force of personality, not intellect. But his, college, his colleagues at Bromley Tech were famous for neither. And he, Frampton, yielded the school's most gifted pupils to the arts a regime so liberal that Frampton actively encouraged his own son, Peter, to pursue a musical career with David. Hmm. So, yeah. Oh, what does that have to do with being liberal? I think like uh, like liberal arts, right? Like like everything up, up until Frampton took over was very conservative. And Frampton was like, yeah, you're allowed to learn art and music and dance and et cetera, et cetera. Okay. But David's biggest musical influence came not from Peter or Owen Frampton, but from his own half-brother, Terry Burns. Terry was 10 years older than David, and he was a product of his mother's first marriage. This is from Far Out Magazine. A crucial part of his career and the development of Bowie's artistic ideas was his half-brother, Terry. He's credited with introducing the young Bowie, then just known as David Jones, to modern jazz, Buddhism, beat poetry... Uh, William S. Burroughs, and even The Occult. It's always The Occult with you. It's always The Occult with me. The exposure to these elements was nothing short of transformative for the young star in waiting. Bowie acknowledged Terry's influence, saying that from him he got, quote, the greatest serviceable education that I could have had. He introduced me to the outside things. I saw the magic, and I caught the enthusiasm for it because of his enthusiasm, and I kind of wanted to be like him. How much older? Ten years. Okay. So David's like 11-ish right now. Terry's like in his early 20s. So this is from grunge.com, which is shaping up to be like a really great source for things. I always go to grunge.com and they always have great information. So David Bowie's half-brother Terry was born out of wedlock. And due to the stigma associated with such births, he was, ha- he was handed off to his grandmother, Margaret, who was emotionally and physically abusive to him. And his mental instability had its genesis then and grew over time. Even when, at nine years old, he was sent back to live with his mother, her new husband, and his baby half-brother, David. From that point, David looked up to Terry, and there was a genuine affection between the two. But Terry struggled with mental illness, but was eventually able to join the Royal Air Force. And he left his family for a time. When he returned from the service, David and terry spent time together and one night they went to see cream at a club in london and the volume Mm -hmm. of the music proved to be too much for terry david took him outside and terry had a schizophrenic vision he saw the ground opening up and fire coming out of it and he told david that he had these visions often that's terrible yeah so from that point on terry lived he split his time between the Bowie family home and a psychiatric ward. He suffered from crippling schizophrenia and seizures. And weirdly, this is kind of only incidental, but there's like a famous quote about seizures. And when you feel a seizure coming on, you see God. So this quote about 2D fruity takes on a new meaning for me. Oh, okay. I see what you did there. See, I'm, I'm taking you on a journey here. <laughs> As Bowie reached adulthood over the late 60s and early 70s, his wife, Angela, and David, and Terry Burns, they became very close. But by the mid 
70s, Burns had stopped taking his medication and his mental state declined. And before too long, he was readmitted to a mental hospital where he would spend the rest of his days. The last time Bowie saw Terry was in 1981. And tragically, he died by suicide after escaping a mental institution in 1985. Hmm. And this was a, a contentious subject for the family um mm. because you know burns had a significant impact in bowie's career and not only did he introduce david to all of these essential artistic points and that would influence him but burns's experience with mental illness would become an ever-present theme within bowie's work in a, yeah in addition to the suffering that Burns went through, many other members of Bowie's family on his mother's side also suffered from schizophrenia spectrum disorders, and they were so severe that his mother's sister was sent for a lobotomy. <gasps> Stop! Yeah, and so he spoke about this in a Rolling Stone interview in 19, 1975 where he impishly said, everyone says, oh yes, my family is quite mad, but mine really is. Wow. Mark Spitz, who was one of Bowie's biographers, noted that schizophrenia was a family curse that seemed to be seared deeply into the genetic code of the Burns side of the family, at least. And the behaviors with, associated with schizophrenia can recess from outside view only to be triggered by some calamity. So for Peggy, who is Bowie's mom and her siblings, there were two such forces that triggered this onset of schizophrenia. Their mother, Margaret the First. And the Nazis bombing of England during World War II. According to one account, mm -hmm. Margaret Burns, Bowie's grandmother, was a cruel woman who took her anger out on everyone around her. Margaret's own daughter, Peggy's sister, Pat, once said that her mother was a cold woman. There was not a lot of love around. Two of Peggy's other sisters, Nora and Vivian, began exhibiting signs of schizophrenia earlier in their lives, but the nightly shelling during the Blitz in, the, in 1940, coupled with the just the idea of Hitler occupying England, exacerbated the girls' problems. And Bowie himself eventually wondered whether he would fall victim to schizophrenia one day. Even some... Wouldn't you? Yes, of course. <laughs> and many theorized that he developed so many personas throughout his career as a way of dealing with some latent schizophrenic tendencies. Oh, or maybe it was like a beat it to the punch. Yeah, exactly. Chicken or egg, right? Yeah. So back to Far Out magazine. Works from across his career was were colored by the themes of schizophrenia, um, be it the song All the Mad Men or The Prisoner or even his record Aladdin Sane. Aladdin Sane? Aladdin Sane. Um, additionally, the recurring feeling that he had that he too would succumb to the mental illness was one struggle he had to deal with. In 83, Bowie's aunt Pat said that David said visiting Terry frightens him because he fears insanity himself. It would frighten me too. Yeah. And it's one of those things where you can convince yourself of anything. 100%. So it's just a self-fulfilling prophecy the more yep. you're faced with it. And so Bo, in Bowie's case, he, he admitted himself for the longest time that without the relationship he had with Terry, the education that Terry gave him, it's likely that David Bowie, the artist, would have never existed. But in 1993, in an interview, he played all of this down, saying that he had projected a great deal onto his elder sibling. Quote, I think I unconsciously exaggerated his importance. 
I invented this hero worship to discharge my guilt and failure and to set myself free from my own hangups. Okay, hold on. Let's unpack that a little. Yes. I can understand. Let's, yeah, let's please unpack this. Okay. I feel like it's totally normal to kind of idolize an older sibling. Yes. And to be afraid of the, of the, of the family curse, right? Yes, exactly. Especially someone who's so much older. Mm Mm-hmm. I can see them having a huge influence. So why then later in life would he try and downplay that? That's a good motherfucking question, Lindsay. <laughs> so wh- you know the answer. I I I kind of have the answer, but it'll, it's going to take us a while to get there. Okay. Speaking of David Bowie never existing, uh, after playing in bands called this is 1966. After playing in were bands, you speaking about that, we were. We said if without Terry, David <laughs> Bowie would have never existed. Okay. Uh, so back to 1966, David Bowie played in, a, David Jones played in bands called the Conrads, the King Bees, the Manish Boys, the Lower Thirds, the Buzz, a couple others. And after failing to attract any attention at all, it was 1966 that Davy Jones officially became David Bowie. He had tried going by Davy Jones, but it was the name, same name as the lead singer of the Monkees. Yeah. Hey, hey, with the monkeys. Exactly. And so he chose his new name after the American pioneer Jim Bowie, who is credited for the Bowie knife. And he just didn't know that it wasn't pronounced Bowie. Really? Yeah. And what is a Bowie knife? A Bowie knife is a knife that, that Jim Bowie pioneered. It's like a maybe a four I heard inch, that, but is it like... It's like a four-inch hunting s- knife. It's a, it's a small knife. Okay, that's it. Yeah. It's not like curve no no i mean there's like a curved edge and a serrated edge but like it's a it's nothing spectacular it's just the name of the so knife. why did he like this knife so much why did jim bowie like this knife so much no david bowie no david davy bowie davy jones it, named himself after but, the knife inventor no but he wasn't just like a guy who <laughs> made knives he was an american pioneer he was like a rough man he like lived in the woods and fucking killed he was like davy crockett or something that doesn't seem very david bowie-ish i know well listen i'm just i'm just telling you what is the truth i don't know what to tell you toxic masculinity i guess i think it's just like a cool guy right cool guy a year later he released his first single and it was still with the band the members of the lower third so it was david david bowie and the lower thirds but they just dropped the name like ted nugent dropped the amboy dukes He's just like, no, we're just David Bowie now. Okay. And so uh, I want to listen. I want you to listen to this. This is David Bowie's first single ever. Uh, It's called Can't Help Thinking About Me. It's from 1966. Question time. That's his I brought dishonor. It's spouting shame It seems that I've blackened the family name Mother says that she can't stand the neighbors talking I've got to pack my bags Leave this home, start walking Yeah I can't help thinking 
Okay, so this was 1966. And we have the okay. lyrics, question time that says I brought dishonor. My head's bowed in shame. It seems I've blackened the family name. My mother says that she can't stand the neighbors talking. I've got to pack my bags, leave this home, start walking. I'm guilty. He's pregnant. Yeah, I don't know what it is. Um, I, I, He's gay. Maybe gay. Maybe it's about Terry. But like, there's something there, right? I think it's kind Sounds of incredible because like he's 18 when he releases this song. And it seems like he's really going through some kind of tortured stuff. And I can't really attribute this to his brother or fear of his own mental illness or sexuality or some clairvoyance for the things he has yet to do. But there's something there, right? Yeah. It sounds like he's dealing with some shame and being quite articulate about it for an 18-year-old. For an 18-year-old, right? The single flopped (laughs) like its predecessors. Um, And after the single's release, Bowie departed the lower thirds, partially due to their manager's influence. Their manager's name was Ralph Horton. So draw your own conclusions about anyone named Ralph Horton. Uh, okay. He makes donuts? I guess, uh, yeah. Tim Horton? (laughs) Uh, In 67, Bowie released his first album, which was called David Bowie, which also flopped. So, you know, maybe... Flop after flop. Flop after flop. Maybe he's not cut out for this stuff. This song isn't bad. It sounds no. like David Bowie and the Beatles. Yeah, it sounds like David, and he was a huge Beatles fan. So maybe David Bowie isn't cut out for this stuff. He went on to study dramatic arts under this famous dancer and actor named Lindsay Kemp. Lindsay was a man. Mm-hmm. From, uh, this is That's sexist. Why? What's sexist about it? Why are you telling me that? Because it plays, it comes up later. <laughs> I promise you. But he studied like avant-garde theater and mime and commedia dell'art. And he and Kemp had an affair. There's no word whether this was Bowie's first gay relationship or not. But being gay in 1967 is like not super easy. Not super easy. Uh, That's an understatement, I would say. Yeah. But it was at this point that he became immersed in the idea of creating a persona to present to the world. Okay. And how how old are we now? He's like 19-ish. Okay. So in February and March of 69, he undertook a short tour with Mark Bolin, who was also known as T-Rex. You know that song, Bang the Gong, Get It On, Bang the Gong. Get it on, bang the gong, get it on. I play it every night. Yeah. So T-Rex, famously like short-lived, amazing glam art rock band but david bowie was he was on a short tour with t-rex and he was the third on the bill as a mime he didn't even sing any songs as a mime yeah he just was a mime that's fucking creepy man yeah mimes are weird and that was february and march of 1969 and then on july 11th 1969 he released space oddity and that was released Mm -hmm. five days ahead of the apollo 11 launch and as oh yes so we can take a little listen to space oddity which i think was the first david bowie song i ever heard so it's me too i remember the first time i heard it yeah me too my dad played it for me Mm, mine's a little bit more interesting than that okay ground control to major tom 
ground control to Major Tom. Take your protein pills and put your helmet on. Ground control to Major Tom. Seven, six, commencing countdown engines on. Check ignition and may God's love be with you. So I was at sleepaway camp. Every night we had these, we called it evac, but it's evening activity and it was always a different one. I think I've told you about this before on here. Maybe. Maybe. So they weren't just like, oh, you're playing bingo. They were like, one of the camp directors' name was Nigel, so it was Nigel's Book of World Records, and people would compete at, like, the most disgusting things to get in the Book of Records, like drinking a thing of cheese was the fastest, gross. or drinking a tuna milkshake. I hate, I hate um, all this. Yeah, it was fucking gross. I never did one. Uh, and one of them was Lip Sync. Lip Sync was, like, the biggest one of the year. Sure. The year. The session, camp session. The, yeah, the So the every season. bunk... Yeah, every bunk would compete... You know, you would do a choreographed song, dance, whatever. And um, the boys' bunk, that was, like, my bunk's, like, best friends. Okay, sure. They did this song. and this song. They, like, yeah. And so they put, like, you know, it's camp. So you don't really, we didn't really have access to a ton of costumes. It was kind of, like, whatever you brought in is what you got. So they used tape and wrote like nasa on a, <laughs> a hoodie and then um they brought in a bed so the the lip sync was all the way at the top of this massive hill in an auditorium and our bunks were way way down the hill and they dragged a bed in from their bunk to like use as the spaceship and like one one person was like raising it up and down while the NASA kid was, you know, doing the whole spiel. <laughs> spiel the countdown? Um, <laughs> yeah, and I remember being like, what is this music? Yeah. This is, it was really cool. I have a similar thing with Radiohead. Like, I only hear Radiohead because through the through the voice of, like, my friend Jason Lieberchuk, who used to play Karma Police at parties in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was the first ever David Bowie single that like did anything now do you think it became more relevant because of the timing that he released it 100 percent. but i don't i also (laughs) think that the writing of it is like we were at this point in the in history where we're all talking about you know astronauts and getting lost and stuff yeah the, the story behind space oddity if you've never heard it and we're talking over it is an astronaut getting lost in space and and drifting off forever in a tin can, which is really kind of upsetting and scary. So here he is, David fucking Bowie, right? Bowie's second album followed in November, and it was called David Bowie, which, which if you might you might recall, was also the name of his first album. So it caused <laughs> it caused some confusion, and the uh, the early U.S. release was they called it something else they called it man of words man of music which i would rather just be confused that's fucking horrible same and then in 72 rca records re-released it as space oddity because that was like the big single from it 
the big single, the big show. And this was around the time where he met Angela Barnett, and he met her in April of 1969. They married within a year, and her impact on him was immediate, and her involvement in his career was far-reaching, which frustrated his manager, Ken Pitt, who said that he was left with limited influence. But he established himself as a solo artist with Space Oddity, and then he began to sense uh, that he was lacking a full-time band for gigs and recordings so people could relate to him personally. Mark Bolin, the guy from T-Rex, was uh, his session guitarist, and Mark had his band, had his career, was going on tour, and this kind of made Bowie... There was like a little bit of professional jealousy there. As there usually is. As there usually is. Bowie's third album was called The Man Who Sold the World, which was a song that nirvana famously covered on their unplugged performance Mm. and it contained references to schizophrenia paranoia delusion and it also represented a departure from the acoustic guitar and the folk rock style established by space odyssey to more like of a hard rock sound and to promote it in the u.s mercury financed a coast-to-coast publicity tour across america jan january february of 1971 and he was influ- he was interviewed by radio stations and TV and all this stuff. And this is important because this is his like the beginning of his like androgynous alien sort of thing, right? Ziggy Stardust. So Ziggy Stardust was a little bit after this, but he But this is the like the genesis, yes. Yeah. He exploited his androgynous appearance. And the original cover of the UK version of the man who sold the world depicted bowie wearing a dress and then he took the dress with him the same dress that he wore on the album cover and wore it during interviews and weirdly the critics liked it the critics thought it was great and john mendelson of rolling stone described him as ravishing yeah how come he was this was so embraced no fucking clue i don't want to i don't want to say how come because i'm glad but it's also just how did he get away with it and other people didn't yeah no fucking clue just surprising. Yeah. So John Mendelssohn described him as ravishing, almost disconcertingly reminiscent of Lauren Bacall. Oh. <laughs> um, and he also wore it on the streets. Like he wore it like out to a mixed reaction. So there was laughter. Mm. One male pedestrian pulled a gun on him and told Bowie to kiss his ass. So he like didn't all the way get away with it. Toxic masculinity. This is for real. Some for real toxic masculinity. But during this, t- the, during this tour, Bowie saw two seminal American proto-punk artists that led him to develop a concept that eventually became Ziggy Stardust. So, Which was what? Iggy Pop and Lou Reed. Mm. So Great. the book Please Kill Me attributes Bowie's change from folk to glam as a result of meeting Lou Reed in the Velvet Underground. But a girlfriend recalls Bowie scrawling notes on a cocktail napkin about a crazy rock star named iggy or ziggy and upon his return to england he declared his intention to create a character who looks like he landed from mars the stardust part of the name was a tribute to an 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 artist called the legendary stardust cowboy and he was given that record on tour so this is the legendary stardust cowboy Mm. (laughs) you are not gonna like this Oh, I'm not. <laughs> I took a trip in a Jiminy spacecraft. 
And I thought about you Whoa. I passed through the shadow of Jupiter And I thought about you What the fuck is he even saying? I, I passed through This guy give Is this the guy <laughs> Did he give this to him himself? I don't know I think that this is like Hey you like this weird freak out music? Well listen to this <laughs> So Bowie actually covered this song on his 2002 album Heathen. Did it sound like this? I, I hadn't actually listened to it. I thought about you. So you want to hear the the Bowie version? Yeah. This is kind of cool. It's interesting that this song had such an impression on him. Yeah, right? And this is like much more industrial, Nine Inch Nails-y sort of thing. Okay, so we got we to gotta move on from, from okay. this. Okay, all right. Uh, so... In 1971, Angela and David welcomed their son, Duncan Zoe Jones. He's a film director. Duncan Zoe Jones. Duncan Zoe Jones. People sometimes call him Zoe Bowie, but he goes by Duncan Jones in his professional career. He's a film director. He directed the movies Moon with Sam Rockwell and Source Code with Jake Gyllenhaal, among other films. Weirdly, I like don't want to... like mention every moment that the, that the documentary gets something wrong, but like they don't talk about his first wife or his children at all they just like they never happened oh weird yeah i think it's because iman his second wife owns all of the like familial rights Mm, and so sure there's like quotes of him being like i didn't know any i don't believe in love i didn't believe in love until i met iman and i'm like yeah you have a kid you have an adult son But he and Angela seem interesting. Well, let's not villainize Iman just yet. No, no, not no, I not at all. I think that, you know, whatever. Uh he and Angela seem <laughs> pretty happy, which is weird because in a magazine interview in 1972, David said that he was gay. And then later in a 1983 interview with Rolling Stone, he said that he made that up and and called himself a closet heterosexual. Oh, a closet heterosexual. At other times, he just referred to himself as a bisexual. So he just, you know, whichever way the wind blew. He's probably just pansexual. We, there's too many and, labels. And have, he just fucked whoever he wanted to fuck, which is part of the problem. He likes the wine, not the label. He likes the wine, not the label. Um, so from 1972 on, it seemed like Bowie would reinvent himself every two and a half years or so. He had his glam rock period with the life and times of Ziggy Stardust and the spiders from Mars and Aladdin Sane. And he gave us songs like Starman, All the Young Dudes, which he wrote for Mott the Hoople and Moon Age Daydream, where the documentary gets its name, which is my favorite David Bowie song. It's a good song. Yeah, so we can listen a little bit of Moon, the, the glam rock period of David Bowie. Moon Age Daydream. I'm an alligator. I'm a mama papa coming for you. I'm a space invader. I'll be a rock and rolling bitch for you. The song rules. The song This is, by the way, my favorite Bowie era. Yeah, me too. 
Bowie's love of acting led to his total immersion in the characters that he created for his music. He once said, quote, Off stage, I'm a robot. On stage, I achieve emotion. It's probably why I prefer dressing up as Ziggy to being David. Mm. With the professional career taking off came severe personal difficulties acting in the same role over an extended period of time it became impossible for him to separate Ziggy Stardust and eventually his other characters like the Thin White Duke from his own character offstage Mm. well he was probably like trying to exert so much control offstage right and then he's the only time he can sort of be free and emote and also like allow the like schizophrenia like he's like trying to control the schizophrenia in certain ways yes Yes, yes, exactly. Bowie once said of Ziggy, Ziggy wouldn't leave me alone for years, and that's when it all started to go sour. My whole personality was affected. It became very dangerous. I really did have my doubts about my sanity. His later Ziggy shows, which included songs from Ziggy Stardust and Aladdin Sane, were ultra-theatrical affairs with shocking stage moments. Bowie stripped down to a sumo-wrestling loincloth, or he, like, simulated oral sex with Mark Ronson's guitar. He toured and gave press conferences to Ziggy before one day he just retired Ziggy on stage. And it was oh. never Ziggy again. This was at London's Hammersmith Odeon on July 3rd, 1973. He just was like And was it like a formal retirement? He was on stage or he's did just he go like, quietly into the night. Okay. Yeah. Things got really weird around this point. Um he started uh, storing his own urine in his refrigerator. Oh! The reason was later explained by Bowie biographer David Buckley, who wrote that it was so that, no, quote, no other wizard could use it to enchant him. Okay. Yeah. I feel like there's nothing we- else we really need to say about that. <laughs> nope. Other than, like, it's clear that he's you know, going through struggling. some shit. Yeah. He's struggling. Then in 74, Bowie officially moved to New York and he became influenced by soul and funk and became the Diamond Dog. That wasn't like officially one of his characters, but he released the album Diamond Dog. He like looked totally different. He had an eye patch on, which was actually recreated for the Ryan Johnson film, The Brothers Bloom. And so with the Diamond Dog, we get songs like Fame, Young Americans, Golden Years, Young American. Oh yeah, we're listening. We're good. We got you. I got you. So this is like funk soul Bowie. Check it out now. Funk soul Bowie. So yeah, this is Young Americans. Very, very different to the glam rock Bowie. And at the end of this song, he um, references, he like interpolates a little bit of the Beatles' A Day in the Life. He also formed a, a really deep friendship with John Lennon, who co-wrote Fame with him and sings in backup vocals on Fame. So then in 76, 
say, Bowie's eras often accompany like a change of venue. This is something that he says in the documentary too, where he like gets bored with a place, moves to a new place, and then like gets inspired. It, it inspires him. So in 76, he becomes the thin white Duke and he falls in love with synthesizers and kraut rock. And he gives us, you know, songs like station to station, which is 10 minutes long. So we're going to listen to a little bit of station to station. Okay. Quick question. When he says like moves to a new place, does he mean physically goes to physically? A new place? Yeah. Yeah. So he went from, from, uh, London to New York to LA and he's going to yeah. move to Germany in a second too. I can relate to that. I find it hard to be in the same place for more than like seven, eight years. Well, for him, it was like two, three years. Okay. <laughs> um, so this is Station to Station. So this is could not be more different than like the other the other shit he was doing. Got a vibra slap. Yeah. Growing dots in lovers eyes. Here are we. One magical moment such as the stuff from where dreams are woven. Bending sound, dredging the ocean. It reminds me of, like, uh, Law & Order music. It does sound a little bit like Law & Order music. So, yeah, kind of weird, spooky, very German-influenced. And so the Thin White Duke was a little problematic, if you can believe it. Why ever would that be? In the mid-'70s, certain aspects of Bowie's Thin White Duke persona gave fans pause mostly for what bowie described himself as very aryan fascist type qualities of the character in 76 he told playboy magazine quote i believe very strongly in fascism the only way we can speed up the sort of liberalism that's hanging foul in the air at the moment is to speed up the progress of the right wing totally dictatorial tyranny to get it over with as fast as possible. He also likened Adolf Hitler to rock stars, particularly Mick Jagger, and the way that he worked his audience, worked the audience, right? Hitler worked the audience. And then there was the moment that he was photographed waving to fans in Victoria Station in London in a manner that resembled the Nazi salute. Oh, sick. So just, let me ask you something. When was the rise of David Duke? Uh, around this time, actually. Is there any correlation there? No, David Duke's real name is is duke right but when bowie just came up with the thin oh white thin duke, white duke no i don't think so but you're not sure i'm not positive. cannot be <laughs> sure cannot be sure so bowie eventually recanted all the fascism talk and the admiration for hitler although i don't think it is completely out of the the realm of reality to say that hitler was like a you know an, a rock idol right 
he he recanted the fascism talk and his admiration for hitler and he said that his copious consumption of drugs left him in his own words quote at the end of my tether physically and emotionally with serious doubts about my sanity that's what drugs will do to you yeah in truth he was also exhibiting symptoms of of what's called cocaine psychosis whoa there's a cocaine psychosis? Yeah, in which hallucinations and distorted perceptions of reality are sometimes joined by delusions. In Bowie's case, messianic delusions. Oh, okay. So Bowie's biographer, one of other one of Bowie's other biographers, Peter Doggett, once mused, "Cocaine was the fuel of the music industry in the 70s." And if that's the case, Bowie was well-fueled for much of the decade to almost crippling effect. Bowie's guitarist Carlos Alomar told the New York Post that Bowie used the drug to stay up late into the night, sometimes all night, sometimes for days in a row. Quote, its function was to keep you alert, and that's what David was doing. It did not stop his his creativity at all. It did occasionally affect his performance on stage. While careful not to appear out of it in front of audiences, Bowie would sometimes forget lyrics, according to Alomar, and in these instances... Alomar, who was a background singer, would abandon singing his own parts and sing Bowie's in order to get Bowie back into the song. Oh. <laughs> what cocaine did do, however, was sink Bowie into mental states akin to the schizophrenia that other members of his family suffered. And he spent a decade, quote, he spent a decade trying to avoid what his grandmother called the family curse and then several more years creating his own form of psychosis with cocaine and amphetamines. His addiction was so bad and the related mental issues that while making the film The Man Who Fell to Earth in 1975, Bowie claimed to see demons of the future on the battleground of one's emotional plane. So again, like it's a self-fulfilling prophecy where I'm sure he's using the drugs to escape. Correct. Which is very much like the guy who the guy uh, from Derek and the Dominoes who killed his mom. Oh, right. Yeah. Soon after, he moved to Germany to get clean, to escape the cloud that had descended upon him that he created. He did what any great artist would do. He applied himself to his craft, moved to Berlin, and created three of his finest, most acclaimed records, including 1977's Heroes. Ah. So, this is all leading up to the song that we're talking about today. I already forgot. You already forgot. Well, it's time to forget again because... (laughs) Oh, great. Fun fact. People usually note that David Bowie has two different colored eyes. Scientifically, that's known as heterochromia. But that's actually not the case. It's not the case. It's not the case. He does not have two different colored eyes. Did he wear a color contact? No. Weirder. (laughs) Okay. This is from grunge.com. In 1962... David and his childhood friend, George Underwood, both took a liking to a girl named Carol. And David, who was like swaggery, very, you know, full of himself, sabotaged a date that George had set up with Carol. And he lied to George saying that she had had a change of heart while in truth, she was waiting for George outside of a club. And Bowie like swooped in himself. She lied to George and no, said... No, he, he lied to George. Oh, he did. David's like, oh, Carol told me that she doesn't like you anymore, so don't bother showing up to the club. And in reality, she was at the club waiting for George, and David was like, oh, how dare he stand you up? Ha! Wow, okay. So, George Underwood's quote, he put me right in it. 
and I thought, you bastard. And after a night of seething, George overheard David bragging about what had happened on a bus, and he snapped. Quote, it wasn't really my style, but I just walked up to him and hit him. Right in the eye. Oh, yes. A week later, I come home. This is George still. A week later, I come home, and my dad says to me, you never told me that you hit David Jones. I had his dad on the phone. He's been rushed to Moorfield's Eye Hospital. He might lose sight in one of his eyes. Did he? No. So George says, I was in bits. It was horrible. I went to the hospital to see him and cried my eyes out right in front of his dad. But it all ended up all right in the end, didn't it? Because Bowie was left with a permanently dilated pupil. This is what gave Bowie those extraterrestrial Ziggy Stardust eyes. Weird. He said later that I did him a favor. So if your pupils always dilated, though, that can't be good. No. According to one account, doctors noted that the muscles in the eyes were damaged. He could still see and would not lose his eye, which was initially a concern. But for the remainder of his life, his left pupil would be permanently dilated. This condition is called anisocora. anisocora. Uh, but they, w- they thought he was going to lose his eye for like a long time. The injury left Bowie with what he termed as a kind of mystique, and this is best noted on such Bowie visuals as the album cover for Heroes. Let's see it. George George and uh, George became a celebrated musical artist in his own right and remained friends with David until the end of Bowie's life. So this is the uh, album cover for Heroes. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Yeah yeah! Yeah! This super super totally famous. famous. Totally famous. And uh, yep. Yeah. Oh yep! Yeah, I can see the eyeball. Yeah, and clear so you could yeah, you can see the eyeball clear as day and you can also this is a black and white photo, but like in video footage you can see that they're the same color. They're both blue. Mm. Okay, so let's do a dramatic reading of the lyrics to Heroes. I I will be king. And you, you will be queen. Though nothing will drive them away, we can beat them just for one day. We can be heroes just for one day. And you, you can be mean, and I, I'll drink all the time, because we're lovers, and that is a fact. Yes, we're lovers, and that is that. Though nothing could keep, nothing will keep us together, we could steal time just for one day. We could be heroes forever and ever. What do you say? I, I wish you could swim, like the dolphins, like dolphins can swim. Though nothing, nothing will keep us together, we can beat them forever and ever, Oh, we can be heroes just for one day. I, I can remember standing by the wall and the guns shot above our heads and we kissed as though nothing could fall. And the shame was on the other side. Oh, we can beat them forever and ever. Then we could be heroes just for one day. We're nothing and nothing will help us. Maybe we're lying. Then you better not stay. But we could be safer just for one day. Just for one day. So what do you think the song is about? I think it's about um, like lovers who either like they just can't get their shit together or maybe mm-hmm. it's like um, like an affair situation. <laughs> I'm just rereading. I'm just reading the lyrics to see if I can draw on any of my theories. Yep. That's those are my theories. <laughs> uh, so it turns out Heroes is based on a true story. Hmm. Heroes has become David Bowie's ultimate anthem, and it's widely considered to be one of the musicians. This article says to be the musician's greatest work. I, I would say oh. one of one of his greatest works. But it's timeless theme and 
epic quality that's grown over the years. In 2022, Radio X in Britain voted it number seven best song of all time. Wow. Yeah, but Heroes wasn't always given such a claim. When it was released in 1977, the song hit number 24 in the charts, which is pretty good. But NME reviewer Charlie Gillett said, I think his time has said of Bowie, I think his time has been and gone. This sounds very weary, which Mm. is not wrong. Mm -hmm. But the song Heroes has grown in reputation and as years have gone by and We've discovered a little bit more how the track was created and what inspired the lyrics. Oh, we have, have we? We have. So it's well known that Bowie recorded the Heroes album at Hansa Ton Studios, Hansa Ton Studios in Berlin, in West Germany, during the period that the city was divided by the Berlin Wall. The image of doomed lovers keeping their relationship alive while forces around them try to stop them was a startling one and very relevant for the Cold War period that would last until the wall came down in 89. In verse 3, when Bowie says, I can remember standing by the wall and the gunshot above their heads, above our heads, and we kissed as though nothing could fall. Although the, the albums Low, Heroes, and Lodger are considered to be Bowie's Berlin trilogy, it was only Heroes that was completely recorded in Berlin. Um, he retreated to get away from bad influences of the L.A. scene, and he was working with Iggy Pop, his friend and musical idol, and collaborators Brian Eno, who makes frequent mm-hmm. appearances on the show, and Robert Fripp. And the story goes that Bowie wrote the lyrics while looking out of the control room window of the studio, and Hansa Ton Studios facility was right next to a section of the wall that was situated at Kothnerstrath number 38 in the Kreutzberg district of Berlin. And Bowie spotted two lovers kissing next to this imposing structure, the wall, right? And the wall had like sentry posts situated right above them. So there was like a gun turret above where they were kissing and it was a clear metaphor on how life and love could still flourish in the middle of this brutal situation feelings feelings well it's about to get worse for you (laughs) who were the lovers who were the lovers we know who who were the lovers we do know who they are Oh, so Tony Visconti was the producer on Heroes and he had worked with Bowie for the better part of a decade. He's on Moon Age Daydream. He's on fucking everything. And he was married to a Welsh musician named Mary Hopkin at the time. But he had met this woman, a German singer named Antonia Moss at a club in Berlin. And Bowie and Visconti had discovered that Antonia's band, which was called The Messengers, was also recording at the studio and Moss contributed to vocals on heroes but on the album heroes most notably the opening track which is called beauty and the beast visconti told biographer david buckley yes antonia and i were interested in each other and we left david alone in the afternoon so he could have some quiet to write lyrics to the title track heroes the control room window faced a forsaken empty lot with the ubiquitous wall looming in the distance visconti this is from uh, the 2017 bowie box set called a new career in a new town 
Quote, Antonia and I had a coffee, walked around a bit, but didn't go very far as it felt unsafe. We stopped beneath the control room window to look at the wall. We had a little chat about it, and that somehow turned into a little snog. They kissed. We chatted some more and then returned to the studio. And when we returned, David was now beaming with a certain Bowie smile like the cat that ate the canary because the song was finished. Aww. Yeah. So years later, Bowie's assistant, Coco Schwab, told Visconti, you two are in the song. But because Visconti was married at the time, he explained in interviews for years that the couple was unknown to him, that there was this mystery to spare any drama. There's a turret on top of the wall, quote, there's a turret on top of the wall where the guards sit. And during the course of a lunch break every day, a boy and a girl would meet out there and carry on. This is what he told NME in September of 77. They were obviously having an affair. And I thought of all places to meet in Berlin, why pick a bench beneath a guard turret on the wall? I pursue this is still Visconti. I presumed that they were feeling somewhat guilty about this affair, and so they had imposed this restriction on themselves, thereby giving themselves an excuse for their heroic act. I use this as a basis, therefore, it is ironic. But that was the imagined. That was Visconti's explanation of the events, and I think that they are true, except for he's leaving out a crucial part which is that he is the boy but i think everything he's uh, saying okay. about is, him feeling guilty factual. and all this stuff uh-huh. is real i because why i presumed that that they were feeling guilty about this affair like okay how do you know it's a fucking affair totally how would you know but visconti and his wife divorced in 1981 and this allowed bowie to reveal that visconti was the inspiration for the couple two decades later Tony was, quote, Tony was married at the time, and so I could never really say who it was. This is uh, an interview that he did with Performing Songwriter in 2003. I think possibly the marriage was in the last few months, and it was very touching because I could see that Tony was very much in love with this girl, and it was that relationship that motivated the song. And then? And then, so, you know, so writer Tobias Ruther in 2008, in a book called Heldon, he spoke to Antonia Moss, who claimed that she and Visconti were not the couple at the time oh. that Heroes were they were not a couple at the time we're that Heroes was recorded. But were they having an affair? Yeah. Well, yeah. I don't know, right? <laughs> uh, he doesn't fucking believe Ruther doesn't believe it, and he says they would have also both made sure later on that no one found out about them. But she, she's emphatic. No way it is us, is what she says. Maybe it's too painful for her to admit that. Maybe. And in the forward to Bowie's second wife's book, I Am Iman, written by Iman, in 2001, Bowie acknowledged that, so Bowie wrote the forward to his wife's book, right? David wrote Iman's, the forward to Iman's book. And he acknowledged that the inspiration for... Uh, Heroes was also part of, also came from a short story called A Grave for a Dolphin, which was written by Alberto Denti di Piranjo, Piranjo, uh, in 1956. And it's about a relationship between an Italian soldier and a Somali girl in World War II and a dolphin that she swims with. I wish you could swim like dolphins could swim. Bowie wrote, I thought it a magical and beautiful love story and 
in part, it had inspired my song Heroes. There's also a painting from 1913 about the soldier in a wall. But so Brian Eno sums up the appeal of Heroes perfectly. Quote, it's a beautiful song. This is, he told Q Magazine in 2007. It's a beautiful song but incredibly melancholy at the same time. We could be heroes, but actually we know that something's missing. Something's lost. Nicholas Pegg and Thomas Jerome Seabrook, who are music critics, argue that Heroes is not the feel-good anthem that it's often interpreted as. According to Bowie, the quotation marks in the title were intended to express a dimension of irony. So the I think the title is like heroes in quotes or something. I don't I have, I've never seen it written that way, but sure. <laughs> okay. On the otherwise romantic or triumphant words and music. Describing the song, he stated it is about facing reality and standing up to it. About achieving a sense of compassion and deriving some joy from the very simple pleasure of just being alive. But Nicholas Pegg contests that the song contains underlying dark themes that juxtapose its uplifting chord sequence and delirious vocals such as you can be mean and i'll drink all the time which is hardly the most promising heroic statement while the repeated announcement of nothing will keep us together asserts that time is short and it does to me like give off those affair vibes right of Mm -hmm. like like i'm surprised that you just like nailed that (laughs) Um, and then like the shame was on the other side, right? Yes. Um, we could be heroes just for one day. Uh, nothing could so, keep us apart. Nothing could keep us together. Yeah. I, I get it. I think once you look at it, it's there. But Bowie made a, song, made a video for the song, which is what we watched. And it premiered in an unusual place, which is the Bing Crosby Christmas special. Bing Crosby. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. So, by the way, this is like a total digression. I had to explain to one of my students who's like 19 that Bing Crosby is a different person than Bill Cosby. No. Listen. So, in 1977, Crosby recorded a Christmas special in London called Merry Old Christmas. Bowie agreed to sing a duet with Crosby, which became the famous Little Drummer Boy Peace on Earth mashup. So the reason that he did that was to get Crosby to premiere the video for Heroes. So I have a a, little drummer boy. Have you seen? You've heard this version, right? A hundred percent. Well, here's a clip. Hello. You the new butler? It's been a long time since I've been the new anything. What's happened to uh, Hudson? I guess he's changing. Yeah, he does that a lot, doesn't he? Um, oh, I'm David Bowie. I live down the road. Oh. Sir Percival lets me use his piano when he's not around. He's not around, is he? I can honestly say I haven't seen him, but come on in. Come in. Come on in. Come on in. Are you related to Sir Percival? Well, distantly, yeah. Oh, you're not the uh, poor relation from America, right? <laughs> Gee, news sure travels fast, doesn't it? I'm Bing. Oh, I'm pleased to meet you. You're the one that sings, right? Well, right or wrong, I sing either way. Oh, well, I sing too. Oh, good. What kind of singing? Well, mostly the contemporary stuff. Do you, uh, do you like modern music? Oh, I think it's marvelous. Some of it really fine. But tell me, uh, you ever listen to any of the older fellas? Oh, yeah, sure. Oh, I, I like, think uh, it's marvelous. John Lennon. And the other one with, uh, Harry Nelson. 
Mm, you go back that far, huh? Yeah, I think this is kind of adorable. None of us is these days. In fact, yeah. I've got a six-year-old son, and he really gets excited around. He's talking about his kids. You went for any of the traditional things in the uh, boy household, Christmas time? Oh yeah, most of them really. Uh, presents, tree decorations, agents sliding down the chimney. What? I was just seeing if you're paying attention. <laughs> Actually, uh, our family do most of the things that other families do. We sing the same songs. Do you? I even have a go at White Christmas. You do, huh? And this one. This is my son's favourite. Do you know this one? Oh, I do indeed. It's a lovely thing. So, uh, as you mentioned, Heroes was covered for Moulin Rouge, uh, also covered by the Wallflowers for the 1998 movie Godzilla. No. Yes. Now, is there Enrique Iglesias Heroes, but a different hero? That's hero, singular. I can be your hero, baby. I can be your hero, baby. So, yeah, the Wallflowers... put it out on godzilla the album and it was reused in a movie that i watched a ton as a as a youth which was the replacements the keanu reeves football movie it's at the end of that we're not saying youth ute what <laughs> is a ute um keanu reeves football movie what the replacements the replacements i think i saw it and it's been covered yes, by a in bunch- the movie theater it was very like emotional <laughs> ah, in the, the movie end. theater <laughs> But it, it was it was covered by Depeche Mode, Peter Gabriel, Oasis, Blondie, TV on the Radio, Janelle Monet, the Glee cast, the Glee cast, and and Nico of the Velvet Underground. Bowie and Angela divorced in 1980, and he remarried international international supermodel Iman in 1992. This is about the time he renounced his bisexuality. And there's so much to talk about his career. That Bowie in the 80s could be its own episode. He acted as the Elephant Man on Broadway. He acted in films. By by his own admission, he sold out. He did a Pepsi commercial, dove into industrial music like we listened to with Heathen. And then in 2004, on on June 23rd, Bowie shortened a concert in Prague due to what he thought was a pinched nerve, but it wasn't. Two nights later, at the Hurricane Festival in Germany, he left the stage after a final encore of Ziggy Stardust and collapsed before he could get backstage. He was rushed to the hospital and diagnosed with a blocked artery in his heart, requiring immediate angioplasty, and he remained in Germany until he was well enough to fly, and within two weeks, he was back in his home in New York, and that was his last full concert ever. Ugh. Yeah. He appeared periodically over the next few years he played life on mars with the arcade fire did you say the arcade fire yeah oh i'm sorry drop the the it's cleaner cleaner. life on mars with arcade fire and that was at the fashion rocks benefit in 2005 he performed with david gilmore uh alicia keys you know he he's done like single single performances and then in 2016 According to Rolling Stone, David Bowie showed up to the first session for his final album, Black Star, with no eyebrows or hairs on his head because he had been diagnosed with liver cancer and was receiving chemotherapy. He told very few people about it, preferring to keep to himself as he worked toward beating the disease and creating a musical statement that would outlive him. 
his physical and emotional states both necessarily found their way into the songs on black star the album's themes of death and the afterlife were uh, seemed chilling in retrospect the song lazarus has the line look up i'm in heaven i've got scars that can't be seen and tony visconti who still was his producer figured it all out and he told bowie you canny bastard you're writing a farewell album Bowie didn't want word of his condition or the forthcoming record's existence released to the press, so he had the musicians he worked with sign NDAs. Guitarist Earl Slick, who had been with Bowie since 1974, said such a step was unnecessary due to how much he admired Bowie as an artist and a person. I didn't have to sign it, he told a British talk show. I signed it because I was asked to, but all anybody had to do was ask me to be quiet, out of, and out of respect, we would have been. Yeah, I'm sure they would have. January 10th. 2016 two days after his 69th birthday and the release of black star david bowie died and the statement from his family shocked everyone as the cancer Remember when diagnosis we thought 2016 was the worst year ever yeah well i have long since had a theory that david bowie and prince were the two angels protecting us and now that they're gone we're you know fucked fucked the statement from his family shocked everyone because the cancer diagnosis had been kept quiet and uh just a week before he died bowie told visconti that he wanted to make one more album but it never came to be um he always did what he wanted to do visconti wrote and he wanted to do it his way and he wanted to do it the best way his death was no different from his life a work of art okay so why then am i talking about all this stuff about kill your heroes what was the point of this big disclaimer at the top of the episode it's time for us to meet Lori maddox sometimes known as Lori lightning she is alive still but she was a child model and a baby groupie quote-unquote baby groupie of the 1970s what's a baby groupie well you don't want to i mean you you know what it is a band-aid a band-aid but but baby because she was very young yeah 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 um and so starting at the age of 15 Lori maddox ranked among the most desired of the baby groupies who were helping to satisfy the sexual appetites of people like Jimmy Page, Mick Jagger, David Bowie, and others. She hung out at the Playboy Mansion, and she modeled in the pages of Star. And in time, she and her friend Sable Star helped inspire the character of Penny Lane in Almost Famous. Who was 15, 16? Who was like 16, yeah. So in 2015, before David Bowie's death, Maddox was the subject of a thrillist piece called I Lost My Virginity to David Bowie of which I will read excerpts from now. So this is, I'll, I'll be, I'm going to be Lori for a second. Sable okay. Star lived to fuck rock stars. She was so glamorous, totally one of a kind, wearing scarves for shirts and going topless without hesitation. My junior high school friend, Queenie, became friends with Sable and introduced me. I was 14, Sable was the same age, and I felt completely in awe of her. My mother owned a concession at the movie star restaurant chastens chastens on weekend nights while she worked i snuck out of the house to hang with queenie and sable at the clubs on the sunset strip what i remember about the e-club was bowie i met him when he was doing the spiders from mars tour i had not yet turned 15 and he wanted to take me to his hotel room i was still a virgin and terrified he had hair the color of carrots no eyebrows and the whitest skin imaginable i grabbed on to 
the DJ and club owner, Rodney Bingenheimer, and said, I was with him. So we just hung out and talked. I had probably kissed boys at that point, but I wasn't ready for David Bowie. The next time Bowie was in town, though maybe five months later, I got a call at home from his bodyguard, this huge black guy named Stewie. He told me that David wanted to take me to dinner. Obviously, I had no homework that night. Fuck homework. I wasn't spending a lot of time at school anyway. I said that I would like to go, but that I wanted to bring my friend Sable. She was dying to fuck Bowie. I figured that she would sleep with him while I got to hang out and have fun. At the time, Sable and her sister Coral were both dating Iggy Pop. Spending time at the home of Tony DeFreeze, who was the manager of David Bowie and Iggy Pop, up in Laurel Canyon. People there were so high all the time. Quaaludes, heroin, whatever. In the limo ride to the Rainbow Room, Sable said, if you touch David, I will kill you. I didn't think she was kidding. We sat at this corner table in a private room. Stewie rolled enormous blunts. John Lennon and Yoko Ono stopped by to say hello. We were drinking cocktails and looking at menus when some guy, some crazy guy, dove over the table and said to David, you flaming fucking F-slur for gay people. Kill Bowie. Jesus. Right. The next thing you know, Stewie's got the guy pinned down and we're being escorted out a side door and back into the limo. Danny's song was playing on the radio and Sable started singing to David, we ain't got honey, but I'm so in love with your money, which is the a reversal of the lyrics of yeah, the song. Right. He, he laughed so hard he thought it was hilarious. We got to the Beverly Hilton and all went up to Bowie's enormous suite. I found myself more and more fascinated by him. He was beautiful and clever and poised. I was incredibly turned on. Bowie excused himself and left us in this big living room with white shag carpeting and floor-to-ceiling windows. Stewie brought out champagne and hash. We were getting stoned when all of a sudden the bedroom door opens and there is Bowie in this fucking beautiful red and orange and yellow kimono. He focused his famously two-colored eyes on me and said, Lori, darling, can you come with me? Sable looked like she wanted to murder me. And he walked me through his bedroom and into the bathroom where he dropped his kimono. He got into the tub already filled with water and asked me to wash him. Of course I did. Then he escorted me into the bedroom, gently took off my clothes, and de-virginized me. Two hours later, I went to check on Sable. She was all fucked up in the living room, walking around, fogging up windows, and writing, I want to fuck David. Oh, my goodness. I told him what she was doing and that I felt bad, and Bowie said, well, darling, bring her in. That night, I lost my virginity and had my first threesome. Whoa. The next morning, there was bang on the door, and it was fucking Angie, Bowie's wife. Oh, my goodness. I was terrified of her. David said not to worry about it. They were already at the point where they had separate rooms. She probably knew he was in there with girls or boys. He was totally bisexual. I saw David many times after that for the next 10 years, and it was always great. It was always great. Great, yeah. So she doesn't have any negative Not a single regret. Nope. And, and Thrillist says, still, you were a 15-year-old kid, and he was an adult man with a lot of experience and power and drugs. You don't see a problem with that now. And she replies, I was an innocent girl, but the way it happened was so beautiful. I remember him looking like God and having me over the table. Who wouldn't want to lose their virginity to David Bowie? Oof, uh, Thrillist doubles down, right? But did it yeah. ever feel like there was something unusual about it? And she says, no. You, ha- you need to understand that. How could it feel unusual if it's your first time? Yes, then that's all you right, know. Exactly. So she says, you need to understand that my life has never been normal. I have always been special. I have always felt like the universe was taking care of me. So 
Right. Exactly. <laughs> so this is from the Daily Beast. Rockstar escapades from that period have been glamorized for decades with no regard for how disturbing or illegal this behavior was. It became part of the mythos, a disgusting testament to how little the writers documenting the happenings of the day cared about taking their heroes to task. And it was right there in the music itself. The Rolling Stones sang about underage girls in stray cat blues. Chuck Berry glorified teenage a teenage groupie in little, Sweet Little 16 a decade earlier. But we can't look at it with those same eyes today. Not if we're sincere about protecting victims and holding celebrities accountable. accountable. It's convenient exactly. to go after people like R. Kelly when we see hashtags or trending stories and their behavior warrants every bit of scrutiny and criticism that it's gotten. But we can't write off the alarming behavior of superstars of the past just because they're older now, grayer, or in the case of Bowie, newly departed. Because this behavior didn't start with contemporary hip-hop or R&B acts. There's some other weird Bowie sex stories that are less written about. This is from Metro UK, so grain of salt. Dana Gillespie claims that she had sex with Bowie when she was 14 and he was 17 after meeting with him when he performed at the Marquee Soho in 1964. She said, quote, I have never thought of David as someone who liked young girls in particular. He liked bright women. It's been suggested to me that him sleeping with me when I was 14 was statutory rape, but I have said to writers, look, you can't put that in because yes, I was young, but we were just having fun. I don't think 14 and 17 is the same thing as 15 and 25. I'm just I'm just trying to paint a full picture here. It's not, but I there's still that power imbalance yes. and you know it and right. you're taking advantage of it. Correct. Of a child. And comedian David Bedil claims that a woman told him that Bowie seduced a 16-year-old and her friend into a threesome while on the island of Mustique in the 80s. So this is fourth hand now. David told a reporter that a woman told him that a different woman told her that Bowie seduced a 16-year-old. Um, he spoke on the podcast Stalking Time for the Moon Boys, and he said this woman was 16 at the time, and Bowie would have been in his 40s. She and her best friend had one of many drinking nights with Bowie and ended up back at their shack with David. He goes on to say David was clearly keen on a threesome and had put some work into creating it. The way he did this, according to her, was to take off all his clothes and put on Let's, Let's Dance on cassette and dance naked. It worked for David. Both of the girls got naked. There were sexual goings on, but she didn't sleep with David. Quote, I said, this is this, is this guy, this comedian, uh, David Badil. I said, why on earth would you not want to lose your virginity to David Bowie? And she replied, it wouldn't mean anything to him. I didn't want to go. I didn't want to do that for him just for one night. Daily Mail, another grain of salt. Examining the ages of some of his lovers, it's clear that he did like his women quite young, even when he was middle aged. So groupie Josette Caruso recalls that she was 19 when they slept together in Philadelphia in 1972. David was 25. Ava Cherry also met him in 1972 and she was also 19 jiling jiling the star of the china girl video became david's lover in 83 she was 23 he was 36 the age gap kept widening he got engaged to dancer melissa hurley during the glass spider tour in 1987 and she was 20 he was 40 but also in 1987 a woman accused david of rape 
in the Philadelphia Inquirer, but the case was dismissed due to lack of evidence. I'm not saying mm, it didn't they're happen. They're always dismissed. I know. I'm not saying it didn't happen because it was dismissed due to lack of evidence. I'm just saying this is we can't like there's it no. It probably happened. It probably did happen, but but this this is the this is the fact of the matter is the case was dismissed due to lack of evidence by a male judge. I don't know. It doesn't say. Okay. Right. I'm not saying that you're wrong. I'm just saying. These I'm not are the saying f- I'm right. Yeah. I'm just saying. Yeah. Uh, all of this womanizing seemed to end when he fell in love with Iman, whom he met on a blind date. And they got married in Tuscany in 1992. Tony Zanetta, who was Bowie's manager and also his lover, said that in the end, the identity of his lovers didn't really matter to Bowie. Quote, he was bisexual, but what he really was was a narcissist. Hmm. One particularly interesting anecdote from this like tell-all book counts an evening in 1972 when Bowie was on tour and he was in a hotel room with Josette Caruso, who was a famous groupie at the time. She was 19, he was 25, and she said he, quote, properly seduced me, lots of kissing, lots of hugging, lots of fucking. I mean, he was the ultimate rock and roll lover, but their night of passion was interrupted by a creepy proposition. According to this book, Bowie's bodyguard answered a knock at the door calling for David, and he then so David returned to Josette white as a sheet. He was visibly shocked because he was asked to indulge in necrophilia. What? Someone had just turned up and offered him a warm, dead body for David to have sex with. What the fuck? Where did they get this body? I have no idea. He obviously looked like such a freak that some sick people thought he might be into necrophilia. This is Josette's quote. But she said Bowie was absolutely disgusted that people would think of him in this way. Who on earth, quote, who on earth do they think I am? Why would they think I'd be interested in something like that? Why would I be interested in fucking a dead body? So there's a reason, by the way, that I'm skeptical about basically all this stuff from the Metro and Daily Mail. And it's because of this quote, quote, he also had regularly. He also regularly had several lovers on the go at once, like while he was with mime artist Lindsay Kemp. And she said she was aware he was seeing other people, too. She was woken up by noises in the next room, and it turned out he was having sex with her best friend so vigorously that the walls were shaking. And we established earlier that Lindsay Kemp was, in fact, a man, a male. Yes. So I'm, I'm just I'm not saying I'm just saying if you can't get the basics the of the story right. right. Sure. So what does what do we make of all this? How do how do we talk about this? Are you asking me? Yeah. I mean, I have I have stuff about it, but what do, how should we talk about this? I will ask you. I hate to say this is the same thing in the same way we talk about it every week, but that we end up here almost every single week. And I think the way that we do we talk about it is that raising awareness that children do not have fully formed brains and cannot make decisions like this, especially in the face of fame and power imbalance, mm-hmm. needs to be more front and center in this rape culture that we're living in that's just consistently brushed under the rug. Yeah, and I think the active term is rape culture, right? It's not just that David Bowie did some indefensible things. It's that the entire industry was built around making this okay for him to do. Right. So Gia Tolentino from Jezebel put it, 
pretty well in her article, What Should We Say About David Bowie and Lori Maddox? This is this is Gia talking. There are two underlying assumptions here that I question. First, that we either have to write off David Bowie in deference to the women, or we have to write off the women in deference to David Bowie. That we can't value one without devaluing the other. The second is that it's a critical dodge to even bring up the fact that we're talking about the 70s. Aaron Keene makes this point at Salon, and wasn't it, as she says, a different world? Oh, the 70s. Things were different then. But they were not, really, Mm -hmm. no matter how many times we all collectively wish it to be true. If you can say it with a straight face, men don't have sex with young girls anymore, well, good luck to you with that. What changes (laughs) is this only, which girls, which men, how and where it's allowed. Okay. So... Gia disagrees with Aaron Keene making this point. She says, which girls, which men, and how it's allowed, those changes do matter. If they don't, neither does any of the political and cultural movement that distances now from then. Outside a courtroom, it's impossible to overvalue the role of context, which includes, but certainly is not limited to age in a sexual encounter. Acknowledging the landscape of a few decades ago does not vanish the blame, but enlarge it. It is important, not incidental, that David Bowie was part of the norm. I'm processing. Great. Yep. It's a cultural issue. And this is exactly what she says. It's easy to see what Bowie represents here, a sexual norm that has always appallingly favored men and the abuse that stems from and surpasses even that. It's easy to denounce the part of Bowie that played in this, even with any number of purportedly mitigating factors, the political context, Maddox's story, the fact that he lived with generosity and openness, the less generous fact that his synapses were perpetually blitzed with cocaine. It's less easy to turn over what Maddox evinces in this narrative from the late seventies to her account now, which is that women have developed this vastly unfair, nonetheless remarkable and still essential ability to find pleasure and freedom in a system that oppresses them. Also true. But sometimes I think we as women convince ourselves that we are having fun because we think it's what we're supposed to be doing because we've been taught that. I can't disagree with that. I wouldn't even begin to disagree with that. There's so many things where that you think are your choice when you're a young woman and you look back with grown eyes and you realize that I wasn't being true to myself. I didn't even know who I was, let alone. Exactly. And, and frankly, the same could be said about Bowie in particular, who is like all fucked up and, and very, very concerned about his family's curse. But he was the perpetrator of these acts, not the victim. So it's easier to side with the person who was 15 years old and seemed like she convinced herself that she was making this choice to have sex with David Bowie. But like, I don't know if she wants I mean, had a choice. Didn't seem like it. Yeah. Um, the, there was a, the end of that story on that boat where the the girl who said no, like David like came out and like consoled her and was like, is everything okay? Which is like, I cool. I mean, I, I, I guess it's good that he didn't like force her, but like, wh- like the bar is in hell. That's, yeah. I'm, yeah. So this is from Dr. Rebecca Haynes. Uh, the article is rec- Reconciling David Bowie's Genius with Rape. Every time, this is Rebecca, every Dr. Rebecca Haynes, every time we learn of another beloved figure who committed horrible acts, it's distressing. It's 
unexpected. It's a predictable, yet a predictable pattern, but not predictable regarding any one celebrity. So it always comes as a shock. How can we as fans process such distressing information, particularly when it arises in social media conversations simultaneous to our mourning a widely loved figure? I think it helps to remember the following. Number one, talented people do terrible things too. Sometimes their fame encourages such behavior and often enables it. Often enables it, yep. Almost always enables it. Yeah, right. Number two, being talented doesn't excuse a person for committing terrible acts. Just because someone is an incredible artist doesn't mean we can turn a blind eye to how they've wronged people. Number three, calling out artists' abuse of others does not necessarily negate the cultural value of their bodies of work. This depends on the nature of their oeuvres, though. It can render them hypocrites and make them suspicious of make us suspicious of their intentions. See also people like Louis C.K., Woody Allen, etc. And number four, it's a sad commentary on our culture that modern masculinity can be so entitled, so toxic, that we are repeatedly put in the position of both loving the art and hating the man behind said art for what he did or said to women and or children. It's a horrible position for fans to be in to try to reconcile our admiration for their work with our loathing for their actions. P.S. I'm a David Bowie fan. This piece evolved throughout the day. This is this came out the day that he died. Throughout the day, in my response to posts about statutory rape, which filled my Facebook feed, along with posts mourning his death and celebrating his life, several of which I posted too. The conversations I read tended to convey two opposing perspectives. That this information is a deal breaker that ruins Bowie's work, or that this information is no big deal because the girl says she was consenting. I weighed in. Dr. Rebecca Haynes weighed in because I think neither assertion is quite right. Bowie's work is still wonderful. At the same time, the girl's consent does not negate the fact that this was a statutory rape. As a young teen, depending on which report you read, she was 13, 14, or 15. Her own report says that she was 15. Um, Legally, she could not consent. And as an adult, Bowie knew better. He should not have pursued and seduced a minor. Correct. David Bowie influenced millions across the world. The music genius defied conventional societal norms of style and fashion. He gave his fa- he gave his fans music to cherish for a lifetime, and he's widely regarded as one of the most original songwriters of all time. Despite all of the great these great achievements, his past is not spotless, and for the sake of every victim of sexual violence, it doesn't deserve to be remembered as such. Oh, it's spotless. Yeah. His past is not spotless, and for the sake of every victim, it does not deserve to be remembered as spotless. Well, yeah, for sure. Okay. So what have we learned today about heroes? Don't have any. Don't have any. David's own personal hero also represented something so potentially scary about himself that it changed the course of rock and roll forever and caused David in the 90s to renege and basically lie about his influence. Ah, sure. The song Heroes is not about heroes at all, but about a secret tryst that even at the time Bowie knew was destined for failure. Hmm. And Bowie himself, the rock and roll hero to many, was just a man, scared, confused, capable of making mistakes, capable of exploiting teenagers for his sexual gratification because it was convenient to him. To deny all aspects of his personality would be to flatten the world into two dimensions. It's not either or. Bravo. Thank you. So what are we going out on this week? (laughs) What are we going out on this week? So I mentioned in our Cure episode that mm, freshman year, my professor Keith johnson made a mix for all of us songs of existentialism 
And Mm -hmm. on it, I believe the first track on one of the versions of Songs of Existentialism was Philip Glass and the Aphex Twins. Philip Glass had done an orchestral version of some David Bowie songs, including Heroes. And the Aphex Twins did a remix, mixing David Bowie's original vocals with the Philip Glass orchestral music. Okay, I'm ready. Where can people find us on the internet, Lindsay? Find us on the internet at Lyrics for Lunch on Instagram and Twitter. And for longer and weirder stuff, send us a line. Drop us a line. Yep. Send us a line. (laughs) At Lyrics for Lunch at gmail.com. Like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Let your friends know about all the artists that we ruin for you. And tune in next week when we do this all over again with a brand new artist. Do you know who we're doing yet? I have an idea, but I don't know if it's going to pan out, so I'm just going to keep that to myself. Well, shit. Until next time, I'm Aviv Rubenstein. I'm Lindsay Tucker. Saying, don't have heroes. Don't have heroes.
Johannes. 